Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts. And you can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you'll get early access to reviews before they uh, post on the site, new uh, brief write-ups for movies that I'm watching for the first time that I'm not reviewing specifically for the site. And this month, um, some patrons are getting sort of fresh discussions, analysis of uh, the DCEU films in preparation for Zack Snyder's Justice League to come out in the middle of the month, and that is at patreon.com backslash Sonic So for this episode of the Sonic podcast, I wanted to discuss a type of film that goes beyond simply whether audiences like it or not, or whether it won awards or not. And I, I consider these movies sort of established classics. Now, what do I mean by this? Um, Basically, I'm referring to movies that have become so ingrained as defining the best in cinema that feels like they don't really even need to be seen to live on forever with that, um, with that recognition. For the purposes of this episode, I'm uh, focusing primarily on American movies prior to 1960 from the gold, first golden age of Hollywood, and the three were three films that we're focusing on today are certainly examples of that. Joining me in the discussion is actor Timothy J. Cox, coming back to the uh, podcast. Tim, thank you very much for joining me again. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be back. So at a certain point, a film's reputation kind of transcends whether new generations discovered or not, and its place in movie history is all but assured. Um, this is kind of what I mean by established classics. Uh, in addition to the three films that we're going to be uh, going into more depth about today, uh, films like It's a Wonderful Life, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz are all films that people remember and many people would consider all-time classics. Uh, for most of these films, they made their impact felt immediately, and... Uh, there are others like It's a Wonderful Life where it took its time and actually required circumstances and a new generation watching it to reach those heights. This isn't to say that the movies uh, to be considered in this, uh, in this particular category are unimpeachable as the years go on. A film like Gone with the Wind is a staggering piece of filmmaking but its stories and themes require framing within a certain context of the time that was made for newer generations. Uh, mm -hmm. But chances of it failing, falling out of favor completely are slim based on the strength of the package as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. While similarly, a film like Birth of a Nation is not one that I would necessarily consider as part of this discussion because while it's certainly worthy for the way it helped define cinema in its early days, the blatant racism and promotion of white supremacist thoughts make it mm -hmm. difficult for even, even experienced cities to defend on any certain level. Um, 
There are a few films. Uh, before we get to the uh, films that we're going to be focusing on in this uh, episode, um, what are with that criteria in mind, Tim? What are some of the films that you might consider along these lines? Oh my God! Well, I think you have to put. You have to look at. I'm mean, just speaking of American films. I mean that golden age of, like, as you were saying. And within that, you gotta, you could just look at the filmography of Billy Wilder mm-hmm. and Frank Capra and Fritz Lang and Michael Curtiz. And it's just, it's kind of, and John Ford, of course, and it's just staggering. Yeah. Like you look along many of the films mm-hmm. uh, of the filmographies and all of them, it's just, it's just like one classic after another. Yeah. I mean, for Billy Wilder alone, you could put The Lost Weekend or Sunset Boulevard, or Stalag 17, or Some Like It Hot, and yeah. the, the apartment, like the variety, Frank Capra, the man, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Meet John Doe. I mean, it's just, these are movies, I think, to your point, that what you were saying, these are movies that, I mean, there are, there are things about these three movies that I've learned about life from mm-hmm. watching them. I've learned about, you know, hardship and family from watching Grapes of Wrath about love and romance and sacrifice with Casablanca. And, and of course, also, you know, with Citizen Kane, I mean, God, there's, what, there's just so much there that, of course, we'll delve into. But as, as far as, like, I mean, you know, films, and I think also, I mean, one that just comes immediately to mind just because I, you know, recently revisited is Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and just a movie that made in 1950 is still as resonant now as it was when it came out in 1950. Yeah. And just, and, and, and kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the purpose, like, you know, when I, on a discussion I was having, if the film is considered film noir or not, but uh, just viewing it again, that's an example of like, of a classic. I mean, of course, when the AFI would do their list of scenes and greatest lines, People probably, if they've never seen the film, they'll know it for I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Yeah. You know, it's an off, often parody line. But when you watch it in the context of the scene, it's terrifying. Yeah. Gloria Swanson is brilliant in the film. And William mm-hmm. Holden, it was one of the, you know, an amazing performance. I think Sunset Boulevard is an example of like of a classic that these are movies that even 60-some years or 70-some years later still can can uh, deliver a punch in the gut. I mean, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and just have that impact. And it's fr- it's it's fresh. It's relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some other films that I would put in that category. I mean, you you mentioned a lot of great ones from great directors. I mean, you would I would also say City Lights, the Chaplin film. Oh yeah, uh, the Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein from the Universal. Horror Factory, Singing in the Rain, so many musicals from this era. Even even some of the Hitchcock films like Rear Window and mm-hmm. North by Northwest fit into this category too. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's the one of the things, one of the reasons I kind of want to discuss it, and one of the reasons that these three films that that we're really discussing that I think are kind of perfect is that every time you watch them, 
I, I feel like they're always fresh, they're always familiar, even as familiar as you can get with them, they're still fresh. They're, they yeah. still hold your interest. They still, um, you know, they, they still pack the punch that they intend to pack uh, when, as we watch these films. And uh, that's, that's, that's one of those things that I think these, these type of films really, um, they, they're, they're timeless in a way. And, you know, it's like whether it's a great line, whether it's, whether it's a certain performance that we always remember, mm -hmm. um, there, there's a part of, you know, there, there's a part of us that will always remember that. And there's something familiar about some of this, whether we've even seen the movie or not. Like, mm -hmm. like you said with, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. And, you know, Rosebud. So many people know what Rosebud is without oh, even sure. seeing what Citizen Kane is. And the there's so many memorable lines in Casablanca and that wonderful screenplay. And the the ending that they didn't even know it they weren't even completely sure at the time they were making yeah. what, what they knew what the ending was gonna be, but it's instantly memorable. And um and it works and yeah. it's right and I mean, that's the thing is, I mean, these are movies. People became actors, writers, directors, screenwriters, producers, got into the movie business because of these movies. I mean, mm -hmm. just. Uh, and the thing is, I mean, they, they, it's like you said, they, they never get boring. I think, you know, I mean, if, if I've, I've probably seen Casablanca in my life maybe 20 times, mm -hmm. even if you even if you know a line's coming, coming. Yeah. And you watch it now, movies like this, and you just you focus on an individual performer. Like I could just I could watch Claude Rains read the phone book. I mean, <laughs> or Conrad Veidt, or or you know, or John John Quaylen, one of the greatest character actors ever. He's in two of the films. He's heartbreaking mm -hmm. in The Grapes of Wrath, and also as Berger in Casablanca. I mean, just you just see the development of of an individual actor. Yeah. Plus, also, you know, with with Citizen Kane, the film is peppered with just so many memorable faces and lines. And, of course, you know, we could do a whole episode on the contributions of Greg Toland, who did, um, you know, the cinematography for both Grapes of Wrath and Citizen Kane and changed yes. how movies are made. Yeah. Without him, you know, American movies... Uh, I mean, he revolutionized, revolutionized the way that American films and all films, frankly, are filmed and presented, you know, with mm -hmm. the, the focus and all of that. I mean, that's, uh, that's the thing is these are movies and they're going to be discussed long after we're gone. And mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's a testament to how extraordinary they are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's like, I, I, and this this discussion, and especially the three films that we're talking about, it it transcends you know how successful these movies might have been at box office wise, and it transcends the Oscars. It's like the honestly these these three movies kind of like make the case for why the Oscars are not really a good barometer of what greatness in cinema is because of the fact that. The two of these movies did not win Best Picture, 
And you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody outside of a uh, film fan who could tell you what won Best Picture over yeah. Grapes of Wrath or Citizen Kane. Now, Casablanca is the only one that did win Best it Picture. It did win, yeah. It was How Green Was My Valley won over... Uh, Citizen Kane. How Green, yeah, and then... Uh, Rebecca won over Rebecca. Uh, Grapes of Wrath, which is a fantastic Hitchcock film. It's a mm-hmm. wonderful Hitchcock film. It's one of his great underappreciated Hitchcock films, I think. But yeah, I mean, if you were to, I mean, if the, those movies came out now, I mean, Grapes of Wrath will like walked all over it. Really, it's I I would think it's like it'd be hard pressed. You'd be hard pressed to imagine the idea of Rebecca winning over Grapes of Wrath now. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, you look through the history of the Academy Awards and there are ones that just, you know, head scratchers. Uh, but like, I mean, the one that always the greatest show on earth, that's the one that always comes to mm-hmm. mind for me in 1952. A fine film, but not, I mean, in my opinion, not the best of that year. But, <laughs> but right. uh, now, as far as these movies, I mean, of, of how to attack, you know, because we could talk about anything about the performances, about the direction, about the writing, about the cinematography. I mean, we can go and we could probably do a couple of hours on just one movie. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, we, we can start, I don't have a preference as to which one we necessarily start with. I mean, we can go in chronological order so we can start with Grapes of Wrath if we want. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that actually would kind of make the, the most sense. And, uh, this one is based on the novel by John Steinbeck, is directed by John Ford, and stars Henry Fonda as Tom Jode, who has just gotten out of prison, and he's going to uh, he's going back to his family's house, and they, he finds that they are they had to leave. Um, it is set in the Depression in. Oklahoma, and uh, they basically are making their way out west to try to find work. And Mm -hmm. the film is essentially about that journey out west for the Jode family. Uh, And then once they get out west, it also becomes about um, Tom Jode essentially becoming a... uh, he, He essentially... Is he, he essentially is going to become uh, somebody who tries to set up unions and tries to uh, organize workers for better wages and better, mm-hmm. you know, and better working conditions. And mm-hmm. uh, th- this is a movie, I haven't watched this movie quite as much as I have uh, Citizen Kane or Casablanca over the years, but it's one of the things that is so... Um, Immediately uh, striking about this is the cinematography by Greg Toland. Um, this was before before he made Citizen Kane with the Orson Welles, and by this point he had already worked with, uh, and he was also working with developing uh, the he uh, high folk high contrast um, cinematography with Ford. Um, in this film, as well as uh, their next film together. And uh, one of the things that's always... And this is really the first opportunity that I've had to talk 
about John Ford, oh. who's just one of the great iconic filmmakers of in movie history. Uh, he's Absolutely. Best known, best known for his westerns, but this is something that it it kind of stands apart from them from them, but also you could also understand why this movie, why this story would be appealing to the director, stagecoach, and My Darling Clementine, and The Searchers. Absolutely. I mean, John Ford, I mean, that's a film school right there, just watching his work. I mean, even Orson Welles, I think, even said, you know, when he watches movies, I watch the classics. John Ford, John Ford, and John <laughs> Ford. I mean, it's true. I mean, no one made movies like John Ford did. I mean, and just... Uh, and, you know, I just I love the, the old stories about him, like this being this crusty Irishman. And, and but actors, they clamored to work with him. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing is from from a standpoint, from an actor standpoint, if I could go back to any time, it would be the 1930s and 40s. And I would give my eye teeth to be a part of the John Ford or Frank Capra ensemble of actors that he always worked with mm -hmm. many of the actors the john quaylans the jane darwells the ward bonds the uh of course you know the frank phelans i mean just the, the list goes on and on of actors who would work with these directors over and over and over and over and over again like a 20 odd year relationship yeah because they always knew actors who were smart they knew that they were going to be in something extraordinary mm -hmm. and of, and of course you know that that's the appeal of 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 working with of working with John Ford. Yeah, and if you haven't had a chance to, it's hard to it's hard to find, but um if you've ever had a chance to watch the uh Peter Bogdanovich documentary directed by John Ford, it's really mm -hmm. it's really a fascinating uh look at the filmmaker and you and you really kind of get a uh Again, the idea of the uh, type of individual he was and sort of the self-deprecating, almost self-deprecating way that he looked at his films, even though, I mean, you could, you could tell he put uh, a great deal of love and affection in each one. And, um, you know, the, the thing that this is, you know, it's, it's funny because this is more... This is kind of the type of thing that we... It's easy to see this as a prestige film, as a film that the Academy would just gobble up because of the fact that it's based on prestigious uh, material. It's got a world-class director. It's got great star in Henry Fonda. It's got great cast that's a part of it, too. And it ultimate, and it's also a film about a timely subject, which in this case was the Great Depression. And um, you know, this is this is one of those movies where it's like if you if you tried to make this movie now, it's like a you would never try to remake this movie. I although I mean I I feel like. There might have been like a TV movie version of this, or and uh, there was a stage version. The Steppenwolf Theater, okay. uh, got like twenty years ago, did it on stage, and Gary Sinise played uh, Tom Jode, and uh, and and it, and it was marvelous. It was a marvelous oh, I uh, production, yeah, I but but I think it was more of the of the novel, I think, than more of the uh, yeah the yeah. John Ford uh, movie. Yeah, of course. But, uh, 
But um, you know, one of the 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 thing immediately with this film is there there are moments, especially when he's first going back to the uh, Jode Homestead uh, after he gets out of prison at the very beginning. Uh, you can kind of tell, even though that you can kind of tell that the movie is those scenes are sort of on sets. And you can, but you can also tell when they're on location and they're yeah. being done. But at the same time, you don't necessarily think about the fact that they're on sets because of just how well shot the movie is from uh, Greg Toland and the, sure. way, the atmosphere that he and Ford create in the Dust Bowl. It, it's just wonderful, even when you can, when you get the idea that they're working on sets and then when it's and then when they're going west and uh you know it's all location you can you can tell that you it's really a harrowing experience to go on this trip with them because of the fact that you just apart from the fact that you just don't know whether that vehicle is going to make it yeah california it really does capture just how desperate that situation was for the people moving west at that mm -hmm. time who were struggling to find money, who were struggling to find work at one of the hardest times in in this country's history. Well, and and Ford what he does with the casting of Jane Darwell and John Quaylen and the many others, he captures people. The thing about this movie, it's almost like documentary, like where he captures, yeah. it's, they're not given performances. The, like the, the horror on John Quaylen and the, the, the desperation and the sadness on Jane Darwell and, you know, on, with Henry Fonda. Mm -hmm. He just captures so wonderfully. It's just the perfect mix of director and actors in creating this the story of the desperation that many people can relate to and it's why the movie is still resonant those of everything that we're going through right now those that suffered during the economic crisis of over a decade ago yeah this story is still still resonant it's i remember watching it again recently i couldn't take my eyes off john quaylen because he was so heartbreaking. He was mm -hmm. so heartbreaking in this part. And just, you know, there were moments of like where he doesn't say anything. You just got to look in his eyes. Yeah. And that and that's what Ford and uh, Ford and Tolan, they captured in the eyes. The eyes say it all. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, one of the biggest takeaways because you just see the desperation, the frustration, the the hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah, and but at the same time, it's like one of the reasons that this movie endures, and one of the reasons, one of the things that always makes films from this era, I think, so interesting to watch is that even if a movie just gets really despairing and this, and just gets really, you know, it, it this is a story that. In, in lesser hands could be completely depressing and you wouldn't want to watch it and it would be impossible to watch it. But part of the reason you do is 
the dynamics between the family are just so believable and they're oh, yeah. so warm. They're so inviting. You want this family to succeed. You want this family to survive. To You want this family to make it west and you want them to thrive. And, you know, the, the, and, you know, Tom, jo the character of Tom Joad is immediately defined um, at the outset as a character who's hardened by life, but he also, when he's around people who are familiar with him, he's completely engaged by them too. Oh, absolutely. The relationship between he and him and his mother. Yes. Is, uh, I mean, we, that's another, we could do a whole episode on Jane Darwell, I mean, as well, who won the Academy Award for this performance, mm -hmm. richly, richly deserved. Yeah. And it's the role of a lifetime. I mean, I don't, I'm not familiar with her filmography, but I don't know if she ever had a part again as good as, or was ever given a part again as good as, as this one. But, right. I mean, I would, if, if that was the only film that I was ever known for, I'd take it. Because oh yeah, <laughs> you just you look at you look at her face and you look at just there's it's just an examples of acting with that where you don't have to say a thing you just look in the eyes you look in mm -hmm. the face and and with Fonda, I mean Fonda had already been established I think he had done Young Mr Lincoln but this was the movie that I think made him I mean of course we all know you know most film fans will know the famous scene where he has that. Wonderful speech, which I know so I'm going to butcher it. I don't know. But like, you know, whenever there's a guy, you know, beating up on a guy, I'll be there. I mean, yeah. that for because he spoke for so many people mm -hmm. during that time. And of course, you know, it speaks volumes today. I mean, that's the brilliance of not only the film, but of, of John Ford, uh, John Steinbeck's wonderful, uh, wonderful novel. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the fact that this is. In that, I mean, even without the recent economic struggles of 2008, without the, without what we've just been through in the past year and what people are still going through because of COVID, it's it's still a movie that it it's it resonates because of the fact that this is essentially it's essentially very it's a very universal story, even though yeah. it's a very specific story about very specific time in American history. And he does infuse it with hope. Yes. I think in the end of it, I think it, it is hope. And I think that, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, as not only as an individual family, but as a country, mm -hmm. this was, I mean, this was about, uh, you know, a, a, a countrywide, a worldwide crisis that we felt mm -hmm. back in the, in the age of the Dust Bowl and the Depression, and of course, uh, with what we're all going through right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the fact is, it's like when Tom Joad is leaving at the end of this movie. I mean, it's not just it's not just because he has to; otherwise, he's going to, you know, go back to prison. They're going to find him. He's doing it to save his family. Yeah. He's doing it. This isn't just because of the fact that he's going on the run because of what he did. He's doing it to save his family. And you get in that amazing monologue the sense that this is a changed man. Like this oh, yeah. Is, 
This is a man who has a second chance to do something for other people, and he's going to he's going to take it, and he's going to he he's he's doing it not he's doing it. He has to do it away from his family, but he's also doing it for his family and for sure. the family to come, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and there's a very, yeah, an unselfishness yeah. like uh, about it. And uh, no, I mean, it's, it's a very moving performance. And the thing is, the, the brilliance of Henry Fonda, and not only in this performance, but in his, throughout his entire career, it's really a study in underplaying. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's kind of one of the you know, you know, as an actor, it's just you could just learn so much from watching these movies of just about just letting the camera do the work, trusting the material, not overplaying, not going for you know a a, a, a cheap moment, I guess. Yeah. E- everything that he did in his entire career was all completely earned. Mm-hmm. And just from, you know, just and that was why he was so relatable, why Jimmy Stewart and Spencer Tracy and Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson and all of them were so relatable is that because they never delivered a false note yeah. as far as a performance. It was never a performance. And that's why they were all so relatable. Mm-hmm. No. And and, you know, that that's one of those that's one of the unique things about this era of film compared to any other ones. I mean, you look at the late 60s, early 70s, what the new generation, Scorsese, Coppola, De Palma, all of them brought to the screen. And it's like, yes, there's more, there's more authentic reality, I guess you could say, in terms of they're not pulling punches in terms of violence, in terms of sexuality anymore. But and there's certain and you certainly get a new generation of method actors that are going for authenticity and going for believability. But yeah, I mean, if you look at actors like um, Henry Fonda in this, or even Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, or um, yeah, I'm trying to, or Agnes Moorhead and Citizen Kane, where it's yeah. like, there's there's something believable about those performances, mm-hmm. and you know, you just honestly, you you just immediately recognize them as just wonderful performances that really capture capture everything you need to know about those characters. Yeah, and and just the camera loves them, and they just. I don't know. They just like no one smoked a cigarette better than Humphrey Bogart. I mean, no. you know, <laughs> like he just no one made it cooler. Maybe Dean Martin, but like, you know, Bogey. It, and it was just an extension. It was not forced. It was nothing yeah. like it was just like it was just natural. It, it, and it looked good and it looked right. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it just uh, no, I mean, I mean, we could, you know, of, of the essence of that. They don't make them like there's the old line. They don't make them like this anymore. It's true. I mean, yeah. and if they tried to make. I mean, I know, you know, going back to Rebecca, I know they've made, remade Rebecca for television a couple of years ago. And, uh, and you know, and of course, if they tried to, and I think they tried to make a, a either a TV series or a mini series of Casablanca in the yeah. 80s that I've never seen. But uh, mm-hmm. I think David, I think David Soul was the star and Hector Elizondo was in it. 
I wouldn't mind getting my hands on it just to see it, but I don't, as I recall, I don't think it lasted very, very long. No. <laughs> and 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 then if they tried to make Citizen Kane again, it, it you know it it was just it it was just the time, and it was these individual, it was these people. Yeah. They were. It had to be them, and mm. so no, it it worked because of them. Yeah, I mean, there's really not. Uh, I mean, they're they're great from filmmakers now, but there there really is not a. I don't know that there's a filmmaker that I would say who could probably bring the level of authenticity to the Grapes of Wrath that John Ford did. I I don't as much as I love somebody like Spielberg and Scorsese or I don't know Ang Lee. If to, to I think bring up I think somebody. I think Paul Greengrass with After News of the World, I think mm-hmm. he's he he's pretty marvelous. He's pretty yeah. I think he would get a shot at it, and I think he'd bring something fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I saw Mank. I liked Mank very much. David Fincher, yeah, I think was able to capture that spirit of of classic Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um. But no, I mean, and that's the thing is like a lot of the filmmakers today, they're trying to do something different, but they're all, I imagine looking over their shoulder, looking like, you know, wondering if like, uh, if their films are as good as John Ford's or Billy Wilder's or Frank Capra's or, you know, anyone like that, Orson Welles, of course. I mean, oh yeah, no. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's. You know, as as much as I love Rebecca, I I think it's a wonderful film. I like I said, I think it's one of the most underrated of uh, Hitchcock's films, even though it won Best Picture. It's one that I don't think people outside of fans of Hitchcock or classic cinema are as familiar with. I don't know that I could say that it deserved to win Best Picture over Grapes of Wrath, because mm-hmm. um, Grapes of Wrath just. It captures so something so genuine about that moment in history and about that story and what that story means. Um, yeah, that you you really it's it's hard to you know you you can't really you, nobody else did quite like that and nobody yeah. else would be able to do it quite like that. Greengrass would be an interesting. Would would be an interesting choice, actually, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, I mean, Grapes of Wrath. It's like that again. This is where the Oscar discussion gets really silly because yeah, I mean, you can you can say in the moment that it's like, oh yeah, that one deserved to win over that one. You can be excited about it, but you know, chances are there are going to be some films that win Best Picture and win a lot of major awards that are you know that will go on to be, you know, to to achieve this type of classic um, classic status like Grapes of Wrath and Citizen Kane and Casablanca did, but there are also going to be just as many that don't. And oh, you, know, sure. you, you mentioned some earlier, it's like, you know, is, is out, I've, I never thought good... Green Book was a bad movie, but it's like I certainly don't think it's going to last much beyond the moment of playing Best Picture. Well, know? and that's the thing is there are some movies that, you know, win the Academy Award that you remember forever. 
And yeah. then they, they look back and you wonder, oh, how did this film not win? Or how did that performance? I mean, I mean, you know, it's uh, it, it's all a popularity contest. And yeah. it's all like, you know, how in the voting. I mean, in, in 1940, when Grapes of Wrath was up, the film may have hit a little too close to home for the Oscar voters. That mm-hmm. uh, it's like, you know, like, uh, and not to, not to take any of the way from Rebecca, but, mm-hmm. you know, all of these years later, I don't hear a lot of discussions in film schools about Rebecca. I no. hear more about the Grapes of Wrath. And, uh, you know, I mean, of course, again, you know, with these awards, like last evening, my wife and I watched Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Carrie, Carrie Mulligan is extraordinary in the mm. film. And then it gets to the discussion of, okay, well, she's going to be nominated for an Oscar and Frances McDormand. How do you choose between the two of them? Because... Yeah. They're so, in, you know, they're both brilliant, but they're both incredible performances. Mm-hmm. The thing is, and, you know, the Academy Awards, you know, I mean, I, I watch them every year and like, you know, they're fun. But like uh, the older I get, the more I think about like just you can't. You, you can't really separate like, you know, with like it, you can't put them in competition unless right. they're all giving. If you get five actors up there that are playing Hamlet, maybe then. Yeah. You know, you can kind of determine. But even then, it's kind of like a Hamlet can be played any number of ways. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with the Academy Awards, there are some that remain memorable. I mean, I think uh, don't ever get Spike Lee on the topic of driving, <laughs> driving Miss Daisy, you know, yeah. like because uh, his opinions are well known on, you know, <laughs> and it's true. I mean, driving yeah. Miss Daisy is a fine film, but compared to. The other films that came out and, of course, compared to Do the Right Thing, yeah. you know, which wasn't even acknowledged, uh, which is a, you know, but, but Spike, Spike, Spike got his Oscar. So I think, yeah. maybe, and, he might, and he might be up again for the uh, Five Bloods, but, yeah. uh, but uh, no, it's mm-hmm. uh, the Oscars, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a popularity contest, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you basically have to take the, you know, and really ultimately you kind of have to take the Oscars with a grain of salt, which I think is one of the reasons why these three films that we're discussing work so well together because of the fact that um, two of them did not win Best Picture. Uh, Gr- and, 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 there's, did. and they're still classics. They're yeah, still... and they're still classics, and they're arguably more classics than the films that did win Best Picture. Sure. Um you know, although I mean, Grapes of Wrath uh, did win Oscars for John Ford for directing. It was one of his four, and uh, Jane Darwell won as for her performance as Ma Jode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's one of those things where it's like the some some trends in the Academy always seem to come up again, and uh, one of those is the Academy coming back later and. Acknowledging a filmmaker when they maybe didn't previously. And case in point, if we want to go ahead and go to 1941, uh, How Green Was My Valley was a John Ford film, and it did win Best Picture. And it won Best Picture over Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, um, which is the uh, second film on this list. And... Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's hard to one of the things that's so um is as much as as easy as it is to the idea of trying to 
of talking about these movies for hours at a time, um, there it's also how do you find a way to talk about these films that have seemingly been talked about to death? Like, <laughs> like I mean, I I I've listened to the uh, Roger Ebert commentary for both Citizen Kane and casablanca multiple times yeah and, you know it and it's always fascinating to listen to him talk about these films and uh you know i i've read so much and it's like we heard so much about citizen kane last year when david fincher Man- david fincher's mank came out um and uh this this is a you know and this is a movie it's it's arguably the greatest directorial debut ever made um, it's, it's the first film It's it's the only film where Orson Welles could write his own ticket in terms of making the movie that he wanted. Oh, sure. And there's certainly a lot to, uh, talk about with that. And I'll be, I'll be going over some of that with a, uh, friend of mine later on in the year. We're going to be doing a little bit of a deeper dive into, uh, Orson Welles, but, um, when when it comes to Citizen Kane, one of the things that's so striking about this movie is that it is as is as special effects. It's almost as special effects laden as a movie like Two Thousand One or Star Wars. <laughs> and in terms of the technical accomplishments of the movie, it's as important to film history as Birth of a Nation and as as Star Wars in 2001 because of how it, it was essentially a marking, you know, it was essentially a demarcation point in film history where it's like, okay, films had gotten up to a certain point in terms of craftsmanship. Here comes Orson Welles to sort of rewrite the book yeah. For the next 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there was there was films before Citizen Kane and films after Citizen Kane. And, yeah. uh, you know, kind of like, you know, with performances. There was performances before Brando and Montgomery Clift and after. And, you know, I mean, the thing about Citizen Kane, it it knocks me out because every time there's something from it that I take away Mm-hmm. And and it's just you just applaud uh, the achievement of the making of the film because of course that everything that Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz in the studio had to go through in the making of the film they were yeah. up against a very 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 powerful force in William Randolph Hearst who mm-hmm. you know basically ran the media of the mm-hmm. time with an iron fist and Orson Welles who was you know a young he was a theater actor. He was a very, I mean, I think he was what, 13 and he was already like an impresario, like, you know, mm-hmm. as far as like performance had done the Mercury theater, very successful, had done, of course, the memorable war of the worlds broadcast, which is, yeah. I, I listened to it again recently, still haunting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he, you got to admire his, his chutzpah in wanting to take on William Randolph Hearst. Now, yeah. of course, he want, he wanted to make a good movie, but I think also the the I think he was what twenty four, I believe, and uh, 
wanted to take on this mogul and probably knock him down a few pegs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what he did. I mean, uh, and it's just extraordinary just to watch. I always applaud whenever I watch Citizen Kane, I just applaud the achievement of Orson Welles making this movie, of yeah. writing, of directing. I don't think people say enough about his performance. No. No. I mean, the way that, like, with the aging and with the makeup, of course, you know, with his experience in the theater, he was he was used to playing diverse ages and characters. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the memorable scene of when he's tearing apart the apartment. I mean, just, mm-hmm. he's extraordinary. You believe that this is a man in his 60s and his 70s. Um, with Now, I mean, there's, of course, like what you say, this is a movie that, people have been discussing and will discuss again 50 to 100 years after we're gone um what exactly what new what 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 new things do we have to say about it i think one of the most interesting aspects of the movie is that i don't know if cuz the film begins with this with this great newsreel taking us through the life of uh Charles Foster King. And it essentially lays out everything we're about, we're going to see throughout the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you were to do this, if you were to do this, it's impossible to think of this as a linear story told from point A to point B to point C as like... I feel like there's gotta be some there would have to be some framing device at some point in this movie. It would be hard to see it as, you know, Charles Foster Kane as a kid going up all the way to his death. You know, I feel like you would have to have some sort of flashback device going through here. And the great thing that Wells came up with in that screenplay with by Herman Mankiewicz is the idea of the the newsreel footage essentially showing us everything that we're about to see. Mm-hmm. And then by using, having the reporter looking for Rosebud, looking for the meaning of Rosebud, and going to talk to some of these primary people in Kane's life it doesn't feel like we're going over the same territory even yeah. though we saw it at the beginning. And I think that's that's one of the things that struck struck me this time out is that this would not work as a linear story. Oh, no. You need I think some you, element of flashback in it. And you do. And the thing, you know, the setup of the Rosebud, and it's kind of like, well, what does that mean? And then, you know, with the news row, and then it goes, and it's all seeing about how everything unfolds, and it's a very Shakespearean story. You yeah. know, I like every time, even from the first time I saw it, I knew. I said, "How is this guy? What is this guy's downfall going to be?" Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like, and and Wells, he's played, he's played McBee, and he so he knows, you know, and and infused it with definitely a very Shakespearean bent that you just wanted to go along for the ride yeah. and see. This guy's going to reach the top, and how is he going to fall? And that's that's the beauty of the film, and that's the beauty of the storytelling. Yeah. Is that, like like you say, you do know how everything is going to unfold, 
or how, everything that's going to happen, how is it going to unfold? What's it going to be? What's, what's the action? What's the event? And, and you're, just, you're just along for the ride, yeah. And, and more important, what are the individuals telling his story from their perspective going to bring to that story? Yeah. Like, what are we going to learn from the way these people saw Kane that we wouldn't necessarily get just by seeing these things, seeing these stories laid out and mm -hmm. seeing this story laid out naturally. And, uh, you know, it, and, you know, there's also, it's funny because of the fact that Rosebud is, Rosebud's the ultimate MacGuffin in movie history. And we're actually <laughs> going to, and actually Casablanca is arguably the second greatest MacGuffin in movie history with the letters of transit because both of these things essentially they're MacGuffins are plot devices that move the plot forward. It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. matter what they are. It's just something to move the plot forward. Rosebud yep. is Citizen Kane's and the letters of transit are Casablanca's. Um, you know, but as far as Rosebud goes, it's funny because of the fact that sort of like I noticed that this wouldn't really work as a linear story. There's also a lingering shot of his sled in the snow uh, when we see him as a child who is uh, essentially sold to uh, Thatcher. Mm -hmm. And we see, we see this lingering shot of his sled in the snow. And it's like almost as a little, you know, keep this in mind for later. He's putting the shot. clues out there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a mystery, and, you know, it's as, it's as compelling as any movie mystery. Even, even when you know the, the mystery, it's just always compelling to watch this story play out. Oh, sure. Absolutely. No, I mean, he, uh, he puts, like, little nuggets of information out there, and it's really just paying attention, paying attention to it, and uh, he keeps you engrossed. Yeah. I mean, uh, no. And here's my question. Now, see, everyone, I'm always asked, you know, is Citizen Kane the greatest American movie ever made? For me, it, it's, it's hard because I, I think it's a, I think in many ways it's a three-way tie. I, I put Citizen Kane up there for the achievement of everything that Wells went through with the making of the film, the film mm -hmm. itself, the... I put Casablanca up there, and of course I put The Godfather up there, because, you know, yeah. The Godfather, it changed my life as f from a movie. But it's always, on every list, it's always arguably placed as number one. Yeah. And I don't dispute the list, but it's, mm -hmm. it's always, you know, when the AFI came out years ago, it was just automatic, even before the list was unveiled. Well, we already know that Citizen Kane is going to be number one. Yeah. Well, and the thing and is, well, and, and the thing is, it's like ultimately, it's like is, ultimately, it's like everybody's opinion is subjective. I mean, mm -hmm. there's always going to be a little a bit of subjectivity to somebody's opinion, regardless. I mean, I rec, you know, and the funny thing is, it's like I recognize Citizen Kane for the technical accomplishment, the achievement as in the larger form of cinema, but I mean, it's not even necessarily. I, I think Touch of Evil is the better Orson Welles film. I, mm -hmm. I think it's a better film of Orson Welles 
talents. I mean, I you know, the trial was sort of the same way. But I mean, that's not to take anything away from Citizen Kane, which is just, which it's, and it's a movie that is sneaky in how entertaining it is. Oh yeah, and you know this is this is a very serious movie because it's essentially, it's it's essentially a faux biopic. If you want to, if you want to be, it's 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 essentially like I don't know. I'm trying to think of the best type of thing to compare it to, but I mean it's essentially a biopic about somebody who doesn't exist. And, like, and the thing is, also he is an unlikable guy. Yeah, Charles Foster Kane is an unlikable guy. Mm-hmm. That, but you can't take your eyes off him. You can't, uh, and that, and especially now, you know, in the age of, you know, the climate that we're in, political wise. I mean, yeah. can, I mean, we've seen a few Charles Foster Kane like beings mm-hmm. over the last, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, uh, that. Charles Foster Kane is probably quite tame compared to oh, I, the real thing. At the uh, at during the political rally scene, it's like I couldn't help but think of Trump. Like it mm-hmm. was impossible to think of anybody else in in that scene. It's like, and I, you know, I didn't mention it before, but you mentioned William Ra- Randolph Hearst. Uh, the documentary, The Battle Over Citizen Kane, is an excellent um, discussion on. The essentially William Randolph. It talks about William Randolph first. It talks about Orson Welles, and then it reaches ahead when it comes to discussing Citizen Kane. It talks about the things that Citizen Kane is sort of dramatizing of Wells of Hearst's life. Uh, some of the little in jokes that Mankiewicz had in there, mm-hmm. and it. It's it's an excellent documentary. I know it's on, I know it's on the uh, physical media release for uh, releases for Citizen Kane. Um, I would imagine it's, I I want to say it's also on uh, HBO Max. If it isn't, it should be. Um, but I know Citizen Kane is on there. Um, but yeah, that is an excellent documentary as well. The battle over uh, Citizen Kane. It's. It's basically a feature-length film about William Randolph Hearst and Orson Welles and when they collided. And yeah, it's yeah. I mean that that scene in particular, the political rally, was hard not to, you know, get image get images of Trump and sort of like the the things that we've t- seen happening even the past year or so and the past couple of years and the manipulation in the media and uh it's 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 uncanny it's one of those things where it's like they're they're real world modern things that help make this movie more recognizable and more identifiable but at the same time it's like you you don't necessarily need those correlations to just really becoming gross with this film. It's like oh the, yeah, the from the opening scene, the way that it builds into uh, Xanadu, Bernard Herrmann's score, and uh, the way uh, the the way it really starts, it really portends his later work with Hitchcock. Um, the way the 
film is put together, technically speaking, the fact that they actually did like a newsreel um, effect to the point where Robert Wise like dragged the film across pavement to get the effect of an old newsreel. And there are just so many great things. Like the there are so many great different um, editing tricks and uh, just narrative techniques in this movie that you can't help but appreciate and you can't help but be entertained by. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, th- this is the movie. This it's a film school. Yeah. Watching this movie, it's it's a film school, and it's uh, you know, it's and it's never boring. Mm-hmm. It, many, you know, there are many uh, criticisms that like, oh, the movie's slow. It's just, it's like it it's engrossing because the whole time with me watching it just from like, I, I know that this guy's going to fall. What's it going to be? What's it? How, how is this guy going to be yeah. brought down? And mostly, as we all know, and like in stories of Shakespeare, people are usually in power are brought down by themselves. Yeah. You know, um, no, it's. It's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary movie. It makes you just you know if if people who haven't seen it highly recommend it because it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, and it's it's always worth seeing. Like I said, it's on HBO Max now, and uh, you know I I would it, it's worth checking out Mank to uh, sort of see the ways that um, you know the way that David Fincher um, shows a little bit a part of that development process of the uh, screenplay, the way it sort of you know the way it sort of plays with that um, that uh, real world um, situation, that true story, and the ways the ways he pays homage to Citizen Kane, and uh, it's it's just an entertaining movie in its own right. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's uh yeah, like like I said, I mean, and this is and like you said, this is uh the film most most people do put on that list of the greatest films of all time. I mean, I know it was on the uh sight and sound list for the greatest films of all time for a while. It was number one for about fifty, six years until Vertigo Supplanted um, on the most recent one in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's still an excellent film, and oh, it is still one of the great. Uh, it's one of the great achievements in movies. Um, and you know, it's it's that movie is kind of sneaky in how entertaining it is. This next one, the final one that we're going to talk about, I. Uh, is not sneaky in any way, shape, or form without entertaining it is. It's what it is sneaky about is just how emotional it gets. And that is Michael Curtiz's Best Picture winner, Casablanca. Oh, talk about this movie is perfection in every... Yes. And, and think of, of where it came from. I think it was a play. I yeah. forget the name of the play. Um, it was an unsuccessful play. I think... I think it retains very little of the play and, and you just, you know, hear the stories, the role of Rick was originally intended for George Raft. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want to work with an, as I guess, as the oft quoted, I don't want to work with an unknown Swedish broad. (laughs) Um, Humphrey Bogart, I think had done 
Um, Humphrey Bogart had been a supporting player in movies like The Roaring Twenties, and he had done Maltese Falcon with John Huston. But this was really yeah. his first really big starring vehicle. And yeah. then, of course, and peppered with some of the best character actors on the planet, Conrad Veidt, Claude Rains, of course, John Quaylen, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of just... And every frame, everything about it, it's perfect. It's funny. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's action-packed. It's romantic. It's emotional. It's, it's just... It's the, and it's one of the quintessential love stories in the history of movies. Yeah. You know, and, and I guess... You know, you read, I always read reports that off-camera Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman did not, I don't think they ever had any arguments, but they were, they were very private. They were not sociable off-camera, but they were able to create this magic Mm -hmm. on camera. And so, you know, it's, no, I mean, I'm looking forward to this discussion because I think this is one of, this is up there, like I said, you know, in the top, the top American film there's a three-way tie, I think. Yeah. Casablanca, Citizen Kane, and The Godfather. And, of course, there are other films as extraordinary, but Casablanca is one that I come back to every couple of years. And, again, it's a film school. It's yeah. a film, you know, of just in the quality of the writing and of the directing and the, the storytelling. And it's just it's extraordinary. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's funny because if even if you didn't have the great chemistry between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman as uh, Rick and Ilsa. Um, I just, the or if you had other actors in those roles, I mean, just the supporting cast alone would be enough to make this one of the more entertaining films of the era. Oh my God! Just, yeah. just because of the fact that the ways they the the way they just work, the way they just carve out little niches for themselves, and that's that's one of the, that's the great thing that um, really great character actors and actors do. I mean, you know, but they also don't, you know. And and one of the things is is like Sydney Greenstreet is completely is instantly memorable. Peter Lorre is instantly memorable. Conrad Veidt, Claude Rains, like you said. But they don't overwhelm the story. They don't overwhelm the fun, the story at the center of the movie. And that they score their points. Yeah, yeah. they score their points. And uh, but well, and that's something to be said about all three of these movies. Is that in those days, in the days of the studio system, where character actors they were the ensemble, mm-hmm. the con, the ensembles that were compiled for movies like this or you know, all of Frank Capra's films. I mean, you just, you remember, of course, the stars, but you also remember the Thomas Mitchells and the Beulah Bondies and the Gloria Grahams and all of these, these wonderful actors that were pop up because they were so real. They were so honest. Like you said, they never overplayed. They didn't try to, they scored their points. Yeah. And that's, and that's really what a good character actor is. I mean, it's like what I always say is, as a character actor, you come in, you score your points, and you get out of there. You're kind of like the sixth man on a basketball team. You come in, you score a clutch shot, and you sit back down on the bench. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's like the, the funny thing is, it's like it's hard to imagine that Peter Lorre 
his his character is so memorable in this movie, but he's not in the movie for like after the first 10, 15 minutes of it. Yeah. Like he's but you still remember him. And oh, Rick, Sydney, you must help me. <laughs> and Sydney Love Green it. Street does and Sydney D- Green Street doesn't really come in until like 20, 30 minutes into the movie. And but just so memorable. And he's completely memorable. And Claude Rains is like Claude Rains is one of those actors like I you watch him in this, you watch him in The Invisible Man, and um he he just has such a tremendous range of the type of character that he plays. And you know, it's like he, in this one, it's even heck, I mean Captain Renault, he he has so many different things that he's playing just in this movie. Oh, sure. Like, and, well, and he brings the humor. Yeah. He, he, there's so much, you know, he's, uh, he knows exactly, you know, everything that goes on in Casablanca, and he, he approaches it with just, you know, a dry, uh, dry sarcasm. And it's just, it's, it's just wonderful to watch. Yeah. And, I mean, the fact that he can go from, you know... You know, sort of, sort of chastising Rick for you know his rank sentimentality, and then you know the next moment when he feel when he has to you know when he has to suck up to the Germans, it's like I can't believe there's gambling in this casino. Oh. Like, oh, here's here's your here's your winning. Thank you. <laughs> that that one, yeah, it's just yeah. like the wonderful stuff like that. Yeah. He's he's a man. He does his job, but unlike you know, he stays under the radar. He does his job and is a good soldier. But yeah, he's always like he winks and knows to Rick. He said, "This is all crazy." But yeah, uh, yeah and it's funny because of the fact that so Paul Henri plays uh, Laszlo, who's the third part of this love triangle in the movie. But really, I mean, you you know, he he's. In a way, he's almost as much of in a way he's almost as much of a MacGuffin in this movie as the letters of transit are. <laughs> it's like because of the fact that like he he's the whole reason for Ilsa for not staying with Rick, and he's ultimately the reason Rick realizes that Ilsa needs to stay stay with Laszlo. <laughs> and you know, it's like everything in the, the situation that Rick finds himself in at this particular moment with Ilsa Beckins, like, is completely because of Laszlo. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, and the thing is, he knows. I mean, the scene that always, you know, when he, when she gets, he's standing on the, uh, the train platform and he gets the letter and the rain calls down, falls down and, like, the, uh, the water starts to drip away. And he knows that his heart is broken, but he knows also for the first time in the end of the movie, he is going to do something noble. He's going to yeah. do something unselfish and give up the love, possibly the love of his life Yeah. to, you know, cause he knows that uh, Rick's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just something that's just extraordinary that he's able to do that. I mean, in movies, you know, like who, like who would do that? I mean, of course, you know, I mean, I think test audiences today would be like, Rick, you're nuts. Oh Don't yeah, no. This this yeah. I mean that you you just couldn't make this movie now, and uh, you know, and 
yeah, test audiences would go, why is he not going with Ilsa? Like, why is, or why are they not getting away? It's like, what is wrong with you? But the fact is, it's absolutely the right choice. And it goes, it goes back to the same thing we were talking about with Tom Joad at the end of Grapes of Wrath, where it's like, it's, it, on the one hand, it's a selfish choice, but it's also for the larger, it's also for the larger good. Yeah. And that exactly. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, he's going to be fine. Dooley Wilson as Sam is just wonderful. And so like, oh, sure. he, you know, the genuine friendship that he has with Rick and, uh, you know, there's so many, there's so many great, um, this is a great use of, music whether it's max steiner's score whether it's the songs like as time go- goes by and knock on wood and they're they're the reason this is i mean it's it's hard to argue with you is this being one of the great american films and you know it's one of those films that it has a little bit of everything in it yeah. it has comedy it has drama it has romance you know it has has the villain and yeah. the wonderful Conrad Veidt and, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, I mean, it, it, it truly has it all. And, you know, movies that came afterwards have been trying to capture what made Casablanca, uh, you know, so special. I mean, even the filmmakers, I think you touched upon it in the beginning, even the filmmakers didn't even know that the movie was going to work because, you know, Ingrid Bergman was not, uh, she was a star in her native Sweden. I, I think this was one of her early American films. Humphrey yeah. Bogart was not a household name yet. Um, you know, the Epstein brothers who wrote this beautiful screenplay were trying to, you know, do something different. And then, I mean, it was, from all reports, I think it was a very troubled production. And then yeah. somehow it was able to, you know, get past all of that and become this... A, a, just a classic and not only a classic of American film, but like a classic of, of pop culture. I mean, you mm-hmm. think about how many times, you know, um, the song as time goes by has been played and parodied in movies and TV shows or the character of Humphrey Bogart or, you know, I mean, the, the famous scene in the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, that's like the ultimate compliment, the testament mm-hmm. to this, a movie's brilliance. You know, the fact that it's, 1943 that people are still examining a, a good friend of mine. She watched it for the first time the other night mm-hmm. and she was blown away by it. Yeah. So, and, and, and the fact of the matter is it's like, it's, it's one of those movies where it's, it's striking because of the fact that this is, you know, it's like Michael Curtiz is not quite on the level of acclaim as Orson Welles or John Ford is. But you go into, you really start to dig into his filmography with movies like The Adventures of Robin Hood and uh, Yankee, Yankee Doodle Dandy yeah. he did. And... I mean, there there's so many other movies that he's done that is just great. And they touch on a variety of genres as well. Sure. Like, and they're not any different. Like, he was, this is more of a, this wasn't a prestige film. This this was not a prestige film at the time. It was just another Warner Brothers production with a lot of the same actors they were using at the 
time with the same director mm-hmm. who'd been making who'd made dozens of movies for them over the years. And it's just one of those things. So in that in that way, it's not the same thing that we're getting with Citizen Kane or Grapes of Wrath. But it's a t- it was yeah, it was almost it was almost a a B movie. Yeah. Like just kind of like, okay, you know, we're just we got this script, we got this property, let's just go out and make it make a good B movie. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it surprised everybody because it it just resonated and still resonates so strongly with audiences. Well, and it's it's just the and it also it does kind of capture the zeitgeist too, because this was right around the time that the American this was after just after the Americans got into World War Two. Yeah. So it's like we weren't as isolationist as we were a few years before. And you have these characters who are in this situation, and it's like, you know, when Rick is making that choice at the end of the movie, the reason Rick is Rick making the choice that he does is the only way this movie uh, works in the end is not just because of the fact that it's a self-sacrifice, but also, you know, it goes back to Laszlo's uh, response to him, where it's like, now I think we can win. You know, and it's like, he's putting himself in the position of the team of the same people fighting against fascism in in the era. And that's, that's what makes that ending so impactful. And so, but every, and then everything else in front of it is just completely memorable. And it's like, you have this group of character actors that just like, you know, like you said, you just, they make, they hit their points, they get their shots, and then they move on. And and then they leave, and then you, but it's also the fact that it's like, this is basically, you're, you're boiling down the, the landscape of this, of the larger world at the time in the perspective of one city, and then even just in Rick's bar. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're basically bringing down this big geopolitical mess into one area, and it's like it's making it, and and it's making it in a way that resonates. I mean, I I think that's that's another part of the thing that just elevates this to a, another level too. Absolutely, I mean, it's it, it sneaks up on you because yeah. uh, it, it 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 offers the world. Because mm-hmm. and Rick, Rick's bar, Rick's not someone you know. He doesn't talk politics. He just wants people to come in, drink, gamble, have a good time. But it it turns out that I don't know, yeah, that he's so he's so welcoming of of the world to come in there. And whatever happens, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He uh, he just does. Uh, he just runs his bar. But I think as time goes on, he he learns to care about something yeah like he learns to to give a damn and like uh and i think you know because you know he'd had his heart broken and he kind of let his guard down and he wasn't going to have that happen again but you know i mean that's i think that and that it's it's just wonderful like just watching the subtlety with how bogart does that again Mm -hmm. it's like he doesn't he doesn't overplay it he doesn't uh he just it's just it's simplicity it's simplicity but you know, I mean, any act, any of those actors will probably tell you 
it's it's hard to deliver that simplicity and authenticity. And it's again, it's it's good uh, it's good script, good direction. But I think that was a film that was more or less going to be written off, and then a little bit of luck came their way, and it, yeah. it turned out to. I'm trying to think of. I think that was that was it was 1943. I don't know what else it was nominated against, but that did win. But that did win the best picture. Yeah. Let me see if I can bring it up here. I want to say I, uh, for whom the bell tolls. I don't know if that was nominated as well. But that's the thing is the, the movie, it, it's like if you go in wanting a romantic adventure, you have yeah. it. If you go in and you want, um, you know, something comical, if you want to go in and see great acting um, or cinematography or direction, you have it. Not only with this film, but with all of these films. So it, it's all about how you um, approach it. But I think it is important that these films continue to be viewed and discussed and analyzed uh, for generations to come because it, it's they just don't make them like this anymore they just they no. truly don't no and it'd be it'd be hard to do that too just because of the fact that well a it's so expensive you know you a the star salaries would be so expensive but also it's like trying to get that level of ensemble is very hard to do unless oh, you're sure. a uh you know, plus, I mean, studios don't make movies the way they made them now, the way they yeah. made them then. Like, it's like mm -hmm. this was this was part of a factory line of uh, productions that Warner Brothers had. And it's like that's and not just churn them out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's not what happens now. And, um, you know, it's it's also, you know, you it would be hard to make like you would have to modernize this story in some way in order to even try to make it work but even then you you just don't have that magic that happened because of the cast because of, of those the, of those involved yeah yeah and it just it just wouldn't be the same thing and it's like you know it you so that's where it's like you've got hope that you'd be able to you know if if you are lucky to make something along that people value along the lines of the way people value Casablanca. It's like you, you, you need to hope that, you know, it resonates on its own terms as opposed to, Oh, they just, they hit all the same notes as Casablanca. And that's why it works because chances are, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah. It's, and uh, I mean, all, I think, you know, rather than remake and stuff like that, I mean, you can appreciate, a film like this or the grapes mm -hmm. of wrath or a citizen Kane. But, uh, I think just also from a storytelling standpoint, I mean, and tastes are different. I mean, today, yeah. uh, you know, the fashion right now are, um, the superhero films, which are, they make an incredible amount of money and their target audience of 13, 14, 15 year old kids, you know, um, that's who's going to the movies. Yeah. Most, you know, I mean me, you know, like I, I'm, Movies like Promising a Young Woman, I don't know what the box office returns for that is at the moment, but like that's the kind of movie that, you know, I want to see. Good yeah. storytelling, great acting, and, yeah. you know, movies like The Father or something like that. Movies that may not necessarily be 
you know, box office, uh, mm. heavy box office returns. But I mean, tastes change. I mean, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago, a, a wonderful, the wonderful movie, The Artist. Yeah. Made people fall in love with silent movies again. So you never know what can happen. I mean, trends are, there's always some new thing trending. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's one of the, one of the more interesting aspects about movies from this era that I would consider in this class of uh, sort of established classics is that they're not necessarily, you're not necessarily seeing the same movie done over and over. It's like, yeah. they may be in the same genre, but they approach the genre in a different way. And, you know, Billy Wilder's an excellent example of that. Like, you look at some, like, it, huh, it's not exactly, it's not even remotely the same thing that he's doing in The Apartment, or The Lost Weekend, or Double Indemnity, or yeah. Sunset Boulevard. And it's like, even, even, um, you know, even the streetcar named Desire on the waterfront when it comes to Elliot Kazan and Marlon Brando, it's like those aren't necessarily the same movies. It's like they yeah. have the same feel, but it's like they're also doing something different. And even other Bogard films like The Maltese Falcon or Treasure of Sierra Madre or The Big Sleep, and it's like. Or the African Queen. It's like that's a different. You're getting, you're essentially getting the same type of role for Bogart in all of those movies, but you're getting a different variation of it. Yeah, you're getting different shades of uh, the man. And uh, I, I think that's one of the that that's another reason why the movies that I think end up uh, coming rising to the surface as uh, some of the great films of all time do that because of the fact that they're, they're movies, they're not necessarily, it's not just that they're movies of their moment, but they're also movies that do what they're doing in a way that is completely different from and singular from what anybody else, how anybody else did it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and like today, you know, I mean, there are filmmakers today that, uh, like, I don't think, I don't know if John Huston would make movies the way Paul Thomas Anderson would make and vice versa or David Fincher. I mean, uh, I mean, for as many as there were many really, really marvelous filmmakers back in the, the golden age, there are still some marvelous filmmakers today. I mean, of course, people put Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. I again would put Paul Greengrass up there. I'd put Paul Thomas Anderson and David Fincher, and I'd put you know Greta Gerwig up there as well. You know, like her, like Little Women was like it was like just a wonderful painting. Like it was just so beautifully stitched together, and just you know, yeah. It, it's just movies are just they're just they're just so much fun to watch, and mm -hmm. and you can learn so much from them. And I think many movies require repeated viewings. Mm -hmm. I have I have seen 2001 five times and I still don't know what the ending is about. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. I I still don't know, but Kubrick who's another one that we could, you know, mm -hmm. he was able to take you along and ask questions, not answer anything up in a, you know, and um I think I think audiences like things answered for them, the questions. He would just continue to ask questions. Yeah. Filmmakers like John Huston 
And Ida Lupino also would continue to ask questions. They'd mm. make the audience think about what's going on, what they've just seen. Um, we'll get back to that. I mean, we'll get back to, uh, you know, when, when all of this is uh, in the rearview mirror with everything with, with COVID and all of that. Um, we'll get back to watching more movies. Yeah. And in the meantime, uh, if you haven't checked out the three, if you haven't had a chance to watch the uh, three movies that um, we talked about on in depth on this episode, I highly recommend checking them out. Um, I know uh, Casablanca and Citizen Kane are both on HBO Max right now. I don't know if Grapes of Wrath is readily available right now. Um, hopefully, uh, Disney slash Fox will make it available on Hulu or something at some point in the uh, near future, but it is also well worth checking out as well. Um, with that being said, uh, Tim, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. I'd like to thank Timothy Cox for uh, joining me today to talk about those three uh, movies, and this might actually be something that I'm interested in continuing on uh, as we go through a few different classic movies at a time and, uh, you know, just, just sort of break them down and maybe reintroduce them to a newer audience. It's like, I, I, think, uh, I think that might be something well worthwhile and I uh, look forward to doing that. That's it for this time at the uh, Sonic Cinema Podcast. Um, coming up, I will have my uh, best of... 2020 as well as my Oscar considerations. I'm thank God that the award season is almost over. I I really do not want it to ever be this long again. It was way too long, way too convoluted. But um, you know, none nonetheless, the 2020 was an excellent year for movies, even if it doesn't necessarily seem like. And I'll uh, go through that in my. Uh, <laughs> episode for now this is brian scuttle subscribe and uh listen at apple and google podcasts as well as um Sp spotify check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema or subscribe at the sonic cinema podcast youtube channel and thank you very much for following us at www.sonic-cinema.com mm -hmm.